uh, we call it that in contrast to uh, our regular Tuesday afternoon uh, and this seminar. Um, today's uh, speaker, uh, in fact, needs an introduction. Usually you say our speaker needs no introduction, but he was in a line of work that uh, probably uh, didn't uh, have as much of a high profile as uh, some of our other speakers. Uh, he's a uh, former uh, U.S. Army Delta operator uh, who then uh, went into the uh, Central Intelligence Agency. Were you a special activities director guy or a case officer? Related work in a different organization, and I can explain that. Oh, okay. Uh, good. <laughs> and then do you have to kill us? Uh, <laughs> not right uh, now. Uh, uh, Stu is uh, retired. Uh, at least that's what he says, so we'll you know, uh, think about that. Um, and he's a uh, resident of uh, Tampa, Florida. And of course, if uh, you folks have been watching the news, uh, Stu's home state is uh, uh, facing uh, a once-in-a-century uh, hurricane. And so uh, it's just extraordinary that uh, he could still uh, find his way up here um, and uh, speak with us today. Um, Stu is, uh, uh, was brought to us uh, by a good friend of uh, Notre Dame, uh, the college, and especially uh, Endisk, Rich Early, uh, who is on our uh, advisory board. And Rich, uh, we're grateful to uh, all that you've done for us uh, so far in uh, bringing the real world uh, here to uh, Endisk. Uh, so, without further ado, uh, Stu, uh, welcome to uh, South Bend. Thanks, Doctor. Appreciate it. Thank you. Good afternoon, everyone. Thanks for coming out. Uh, can I get a show of hands? Who was voluntold to be here? You were? Okay. All right. So, everybody else came here because it was your choice. All right. Can I get a show of hands? Who responded because some guy from Central Intelligence Agency was coming to talk. Who responded because some guy that had Delta Force next to his name was coming to talk? I know you didn't respond because of the photograph, right? <laughs> All right, we'll figure out why you're here later on. But um, I just wanted to take that informal poll and see what the attitudes are on a day before a football game in this room on Football Friday. But thank, thank you again for being here. It's really an honor for me. Uh, before I forget, there's a caveat that United States Special Operations Command retold, told me that uh, I needed to, to mention. And that is, I am not here representing any entity of the United States government, neither the Department of Defense, the U.S. Special Operations Command, and certainly not the Central Intelligence Agency. As Dr. Desch said, I retired from government seven years ago. The opinions expressed, and I'm going to try to Try, try and temper that a little bit. My wife says that something happened to me as a child and my mental filters have gone haywire. So to the extent that I can temper my opinions, I'm going to do that in this talk. Uh, but anything I do say is Stu Blanchard's assessment, Stu Blanchard's observations, Stu Blanchard's opinion, and it's just what I've seen in my life. All right, is everybody clear on that? No government affiliation here whatsoever. I told SOCOM I was coming. They said, have a nice trip. Just tell them that you're not working for us. <laughs> Six months ago, when this became an opportunity for me, and it's, an it's a huge privilege for me to be here. Let me say that outright. Um, my wife began a six-month ordeal of hearing me talk about this every day, all day, and all night for six months. <laughs> about Notre Dame this and Notre Dame that. Getting my slides ready. Getting my presentation ready. Even though there's a, cate there's a Category 4 hurricane closing in on our home right now, she is glad I'm here and not there. <laughs> she's a Florida native, and she's going to deal with that hurricane. I moved to Tampa 10 years ago as the senior United States government intelligence community representative to Special Operations Command under Admiral Olson, the four-star Navy SEAL at the time. And uh, when I moved to Tampa, I fell in love with Tracy Blanchard, who is now Dr. Tracy Blanchard. Uh, I, I attended with her an online program, a master's degree program in mental health counseling. How appropriate that I'm married to a therapist. And then she wanted to have PhD deck next to her name because when you're a therapist, you can charge the clients more when it says doctor or PhD next to your name. Right, right doctors in the room? So she went through a PhD program in a related topic. And uh, one of the reasons I'm relieved to be here is at least I'm not getting a mental health diagnosis from my wife today. <laughs> when I am in Tampa, that's a regular occurrence. 
And I think after we spend an hour and a half together, you'll understand why she upgraded me from obsessive compulsive disorder to full-blown obsessive compulsive personality disorder. That's the latest. And I think three nights ago when I came home with a case of Perrier water and said, this is all the emergency water I could find, she added jerk behavior to my diagnosis. <laughs> Who's going to the Air Force? Anybody? No? Anybody going to the Army? Okay. Anybody going to the Marine Corps? You sure? <laughs> Navy? Coast Guard? Okay. Got some Army. Got a Marine. All righty. Well, now I know what I can say and get away with it. And we can talk bad about the Air Force till they fly over. <laughs> you didn't say, have you been in the Air Force? Okay. <laughs> All right. Air Force veterans. <laughs> so, yeah. She sent me out on a mission to find emergency water three nights ago, and I brought home a case of Slim Can Perrier water. It reminded me of the little survival kits that the Air Force people take on missions, the Perrier and the Slim Cans. But uh, she's happy. She's happy. She's making her own decisions, and... Uh, I'm happy to be here. I think because I don't have credentials, that's the other thing that makes my, my PhD wife crazy. I have no credentials, but I managed to stay fully employed year-round working for the Defense Department and the United States government as a consultant with no credentials whatsoever. None. Zero. So if you think about it, you're really here to hear about Stu, just some guy with an opinion and a set of observations and assessments. And we had to assign a title to this talk because all guest speaker series have titles, correct? This one is sometimes less is more in counterterrorism. I had this elaborate Latin phrase that meant first do no harm in reference to our government's response to relatively minor threats. But Dr. Desch said even at a heavy, heavy Catholic school, we can't count on everyone speaking Latin, so why don't we go with something like this. <laughs> so thanks, thanks, Dr. Desch, for the, for the title. All right, since you're here to, hear, you're here to listen to Stu, let me tell you a little bit about more, uh, more about Stu. Um, I left high school in Virginia Beach, Virginia, having spent my high school years and junior high school years working on the largest hog farm east of the Mississippi River. And we fed 144,000 head of feeder pigs year-round. And I made less than minimum wage. They paid me a dollar an hour to do that backbreaking work. So by the time I was old enough to join the Army, in fact, I wasn't old enough to join the Army, my father had to sign a waiver saying, little Stewie can go off and be an Army soldier. So before I was old enough to drink or vote, I was in the Army and very quickly became a Special Forces soldier. This is right after Vietnam in 1975. And if you don't know about Vietnam, we'll talk about that a little bit later. Vietnam had wound down. The Army was a hollow bunny. They needed new Green Berets quickly, so they hired me right off the street into Fort Bragg, going straight into Special Forces training, Green Beret training, and that was my introduction to the U.S. Army. Quickly became bored doing Green Beret work. As a 22-year-old as a soldier, I wanted to do something more. They were standing up a special mission unit that was designed to go out and rescue hostages. And so I joined that unit early on in its evolution, and so that's one of the other designations that you see next to my name that allows me to have an opinion about this stuff. That was the counterterrorism part of my background. The Green Berets do what? And we have Colonel Pratt here, who is a U.S. Army Green Berets lieutenant colonel. And uh, so I'm not addressing comments about Green Berets to Colonel Pratt, but we're talking about Colonel Pratt and the same DNA pool that he comes from. But we'll talk more about Green Berets because it's really essential to appreciate that mission if we're going to understand why less is sometimes more when it comes to counterterrorism. Altogether, in the Army, long enough to have a cup of coffee, maybe seven, a little over seven years. Jumped out of the Army and straight into Central Intelligence Agency. Ronald Reagan was the president. William J. Casey was the director. They were getting after the Soviet Union. They wanted to find a way to cripple the Soviet Union, bring it to its knees, so that we'd no longer have that competitor on the planet. And CIA takes credit for a lot of, a lot of that success. I think there are people at CIA that wish they could rewind the clock and recreate the Soviet Union, put the equilibrium back in the world <laughs> so that we would have balance. But everything went haywire after the Soviet Union went away. We're going to talk about that. That's, that's crucial to this point of sometimes less is more in counterterrorism. Spent 27 years at CIA doing some interesting things, traveling a lot. 
I started off as a medical specialist in CIA. That's the only office that would hire me sight unseen over the telephone. You were a Green Beret medic, when can you start working at CIA? We'll have your clearance done, and this is a record, in 40 days. They processed me in 40 days because Ronald Reagan was the president and he was serious about collapsing the Soviet Union. So they brought me to work within 40 days at the agency. Stayed in that line of work, in the medical line of work, long enough to pay my debts as an indentured servant, and then switched over to the director of science and technology where I rose from entry level to director of everything at the agency that goes boom or burns very violently. We call that special devices. That's the euphemism for the kind of work that I did for my whole career at the Central Intelligence Agency, special devices. So there you have it. That's, uh, that's Stu in a nutshell, except I've left out one uh, probably really important aspect of my background. And again, thanks to my wife, who uh, has only known me for 10 years. Uh, she collected some DNA from me, put it in a little vial, and sent it off two years ago. And we had it analyzed. And I'm quite <laughs> proud to be here in uh, at Notre Dame. All right. So at least a fourth of Stewie has got the right <laughs> DNA to be here. Okay. I'm not going to be so bold as to lead you in some go Irish beat Georgia chants. But certainly if, if that were appropriate, we'd be doing a little bit of that. But I'm really, really proud of that. So I can honestly remember, this is no joke, folks, playing football in the front yard of our house in Norfolk, Virginia in the 1960s when I was a small boy. And we would take turns being Johnny Unitas, Bob Hayes, or Era Parsegan. And I usually said, I want to be Era Parsegan. Because a good coach makes his players know what they can be instead of what they are, right? There are two other gentlemen who really formed uh, me, Stewie, over the course of my professional career. And they have many quotes also, but they were Army Special Forces colonels. And there's nothing they ever said in front of me that I can repeat in this room right now. <laughs> it would not be appropriate. This was the 1970s and it was the 1980s. They're both no longer with us. They've joined Coach Parsegan. But you're looking at three great warriors there, warriors from, from different battlefields. But this guy on the right, Colonel Charlie Beckwith, was full of euphemisms and sports analogies. He had eloquence of metaphor like you wouldn't believe. So if I slip up and go off the rails here and say something politically insensitive, I'm going to blame it on Colonel Charging Charlie Beckwith, who is the founder of Delta Force. There's not a colonel alive today in any military service who could accomplish what he did because he was put up to this task of creating Delta Force at just the right time when the country needed just the right thing. And he was absolutely the right person to do it. Colonel Mize there in the center photograph was the commandant of Special Forces schools, and he recruited me to come and be an instructor at Special Forces schools, where I learned all the formalities about how to give a presentation, make sure you have visual aids and a manuscript and a backup instructor. Colonel Pratt, you're my backup instructor in case I <laughs> keel over or something. So thanks for agreeing to do that. In my current role as a consultant to the Defense Department, I'm very, very privileged and proud to say that I spend a lot of time with people from the community that Colonel Pratt represents in U.S. military special operations, especially Army Special Forces, especially Naval Special Warfare, and that, that implies Navy SEALs, Air Force Special Operations, some of the other special elements within that community, and of course the Marine Corps Special Ops Forces. As I go around to all these great Americans, these warriors, who need me to come in and give some very, very nuanced boutique exposure to them before they go off and do their special mission, I talk to them about why. I say, look, folks, you all are from the community that focuses on how we're going to do what we have to do. What we have to do is what we've been told to do. So we, we're the what and how community. But I'm here to tell you that you need to think about and you need to articulate why. Because if you walk in, to CIA headquarters in Langley, Virginia, saying to the CIA that you've been sent overseas to conduct X mission, the first question is going to be why. So just start your speech with why. And Albert Einstein is a hero of mine. He's got a million quotes as well. But he talked about saving the world. If you gave him an hour to fix something or save the world, as I like to say, he'd spend 55 minutes diagnosing the problem. And as a former Green Beret medic, that is near and dear to my heart because the first thing we were taught in Green Berets <coughs> is you need to first have a timely, accurate diagnosis of the problem before you go down the road of a treatment regimen. 
in my opinion, and this is where it gets opinionated, folks, so hang on to your hats. <laughs> the United States government, in its response to terrorism, has done not a very good job of diagnosing the problem. So what in the heck are we doing administering a treatment regimen if we don't know what the problem is? Or if we do know what the problem is, we're not articulating it, articulating it to the American people. This is a huge problem. And it goes to Dr. Desch's article that was just published the other day on conservativeamerican.com. You wouldn't believe that, well, you would believe that the feedback I'm getting, doctor, I'm sharing that with my network. And they all want to meet you now. <laughs> yeah. They, they, they want to come and shake your hand and give you a big hug for that. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, go find that article and read it as soon as possible. Because this session we're doing in here today ties in in many ways to Dr. Desch's uh, very, very articulate piece on how we regard or disregard U.S. military veterans in our country. And it talks about who serves, who has to serve, and who doesn't have to serve in the United States. And when less than 1% of the population of our country has no connection to the United States military, familiar, familial or friendship-wise, that's a problem for the country, especially when you compare it to the numbers, say, in World War II. Huge problem. So we need to do a better job of diagnosing what it is we're fighting before we go treating it. Okay. As we spend more and more time fighting the longest, and I put this in quotes, the longest war in United States history, and you know what I'm talking about, Afghanistan, started in September 2001. It's now September 2017. 16 years we've been fighting and dying in a place that's known around the world as the graveyard of empires. Why did we go there in the first place to dig our own grave? It's a problem. We didn't diagnose the problem, and we didn't apply the correct treatment regimen. Um, as, uh, as I poll my network, my network consists of a lot of retired CIA people who are a lot smarter than me. I made friends with the publisher and the editor-in-chief of Muscle and Fitness magazine yesterday, the other day. Long time ago, 25 years ago, this guy became my best friend. He always said, Stu, if you're going to lift weights, train with the big boys. Get with the really strong guys because they'll make you better, even if you're only changing their weight plates for them. Train with those people because they'll make you better. And so now I surround myself with smart people because they make me better. The smart people that talk to me every day about the war in Afghanistan have lots of different uh, viewpoints. And I'd like to read, if you'll bear with me, I'd like to read you something right now that came from one of those smart guys. And we're going to contrast that to President Trump's speech on 21 August, just about three or four weeks ago. Did anybody watch that speech about Afghanistan? President of the United States announced a new strategy, quote-unquote, new strategy for the longest-running war in U.S. history in Afghanistan. We're going to watch a videotape of what I heard when I watched that speech. We're going to contrast that to what my smart friends, who still have very close ties to Central Intelligence Agency, have to say about Afghanistan. And I may paraphrase some of this just to keep it going. Um, this is from a... <laughs> This guy has a book collection of a thousand books on special warfare. He's read every single one of them. He spent half his CIA career in Afghanistan and Pakistan. He speaks lo both local languages. I consider him an area expert on Southwest Asia. And here's what he said recently. Of course, if we really were interested in solving this problem, we would figure out a way to sit down with Pakistan, Iran, China, and in India to stop support from the various factions. The National Security Advisor has to know there is no example of defeating an insurgency when the insurgents have an unassailable set of safe havens. It's not as if these regional players couldn't be convinced it was in their economic interest to stop supporting their surrogates. You with me now? It gets complicated. It gets worse from here. Then you have to sort out the North-South Civil War within Afghanistan. It's no wonder Afghanistan is often referred to as the graveyard of empires. That's mostly because the Afghans have a cultural proclivity for civil war. It's what they do. To get a bit academic, that is due to the ethnological structure called segmentary lineage, which encourages conflict and competition at every level of society. Segmentary lineages see every conflict as a zero-sum game. 
Akhekzais hate Barakzais. Sadrans hate Akhmatzais. Durrani's, bless you. Durrani's hate Gilzais. Pashtuns hate Tajiks. Diobandis hate Sufis and Shia. North hates South, on and on and on. There were cultural breaks out there that used to stop that spiral of violence. But 44 years of war have reduced those cultural structures to little more than mythology. I still say there should be a U.S. military redoubt in northern Afghanistan up around Bamiyan, Mazar, and Kunduz for counterterrorism forces. And then we should let the Pashtuns sort out their troubles on their own. As soon as Karzai and Ghani and the rest of these guys figured out their heads were next on the Taliban bayonets, They'd start paying off the various tribal elders and compromising on issues related to provincial rights. We say complicated. Okay. Now I'm going to play you what I heard when I listened to the president's speech on the Afghanistan strategy, the quote, new Afghanistan strategy. Terror. Terrorists. Terror. Terrorists. We are killing terrorists. Terrorists and terrorists. Terror. Terrorists. Terror. Terror. As terror. Terrorists. Threat. Terrorists. Take heed. America will never let up until you are dealt a lasting defeat. You know that song. Rolling Stones. There you have it. Now you can see why. Sometimes less is more when it comes to counterterrorism. But what has this administration just announced that they're going to continue doing? We're going to kill terrorists. He said it. We are killing terrorists. Really? Let's think about one of the smartest people in the world and what he just said about Afghanistan. Let's think about that going forward. <clears throat> I think he's, I think my friend has made a diagnosis, <laughs> but how do you treat that pathological process? I say less is more, is what I say. All right, folks, this stuff's all about war, right? We're going to talk a little bit about war, why America gets involved in wars, why people fight. But check this out. You all were watching the Senate hearings for the nomination of soon-to-be Supreme Court Justice Neil Gorsuch. Right? So I'm, I'm propped up in my house one day, driving my wife crazy, watching reruns of C-SPAN. What exciting viewing. And I came across this little piece of magic, and I went back into C-SPAN and captured this video, and it was a very happy day for me back in April. And I think when you see this, you'll understand why. The bottom line is, <clears throat> are we at war in your view as a nation? Senator, all I know is that there are a lot of young men and women out there in harm's way so that we may sit here and have this conversation. It would be news to them we're not at war. I'm sure that's right. Yeah, it'd be news to the families who lost a loved one in this fight. So I think we're at war. Would you agree with me that it's not a traditional war? Certainly not, sir. There is no capital to conquer, no air force to shoot down, and no navy to sink. There is no taking of Berlin and Japan. Do you agree with me it would be hard to determine when the war is actually over? Senator, that was a, a question that the court struggled with in the Handy case, as you know. Yikes. One of the top lawmakers in the United States of America one of the top, top justices, now a Supreme Court Associate Justice, sitting there in full view of the world, having a conversation about whether or not the United States of America is at war. After 16 years in Afghanistan, fighting and dying, dying and losing people. You see where I'm going with this, folks? If, <laughs> if these two jurists and legislators can't figure it out, what hope do the rest of us have? So here we are. Going forward, full speed, we are killing terrorists. Now, you heard Senator Graham ask the judge, would you agree that this is not the traditional war? And this is key, folks. Listen to that word traditional. 
And by the way, who knows that Senator Graham from South Carolina is a one-star general in the U.S. Air Force Reserve? You know that? Yeah. That's why he's, he's focused on this military stuff. That's why he believes we are at war, even though there's no formal declaration. What do we have in Afghanistan instead of a formal declaration or even a congressional acknowledgment of armed conflict in Afghanistan? I know there's some lawyers in the room. What do we have that we've been working on since September of 2001 for a legal basis, sir? AUMF. And it's back on the front burner again. There are people in Congress who want to push that issue and either declare a formally and officially at, at Capitol Hill that there's a war or not and be done with it. And stop kicking this combat can down the road with our precious lives. So traditional, traditional war. I think World War II, Dr. Desch, was the last formally declared war by the United States Congress. Who knew, who knew that? Which one of these Americans walking around Walmart drinking Starbucks caramel macchiatos knows or cares that there's been no formal declaration of war in this country since World War II? We're a nation of laws. So traditional wars that Senator Graham talked about. He's talking about World War I and World War II, essentially, where there's a capital to bomb, there's an army on the battlefield to strafe. There are ships at sea that can be sunk. There are soldiers in formations on the battlefield that can be decimated. That's what we think of when we think of as traditional war. Or that's World War I. And World War II, of course, fits uh, those criteria. We all know about that. Right? Now, let's, fl let's flash forward to uh, 2010. This was the country's ranking Navy SEAL, a guy that I really, he should be on my list of personal heroes. He uh, is named Eric Olson. He was the country's first three-star Navy Admiral SEAL, and he was obviously the country's first four-star Navy Admiral SEAL. He was also the first Navy SEAL to be the commander of U.S. Special Operations Command. He was always saying little things and writing little articles that really, really tweaked the Pentagon. Right now, the SOCOM budget is about $10 billion. And what's the overall DOD budget? It's about $600 billion, rounding up to the nearest billion. So what's $10 billion out of $600? It's way less than 2%. But you got this little four-star admiral down in Tampa in charge of all U.S. military special operations forces who isn't even a combatant commander in the truest sense of the phrase. He does not command one troop overseas. He does not control one square inch of terrain overseas. He is a force provider. He persuades and influences the military forces, Army, Navy, Air Force, and Marines, to create the kind of special ops forces that he believes we need to treat the problem. Here's what he said in an article that he published in 2010. Those two world wars that were traditional wars, World War I and World War II, have overshadowed what really is the traditional form of warfare as practiced since the dawn of mankind, and that is population-centric warfare. It's people war. And that's where special ops forces come into the, to the equation. So you all, you all are scholars. You're heavy-duty academics. And you have read everything Clausewitz ever wrote. So you know these phrases. You know that Trotsky said that uh, you, know, you may not be interested in war. And this applies to most Americans, with far less than 1% of Americans being close to anyone in the US military. They're not very interested in war. The war is coming to them, one way or the other. Trotsky has it right. And uh, there's proof. I don't know how many of you have lost loved ones, but um, I loved every one of these guys whose photographs you're going to see. And this is Brandon Eccleston. We lost him in Afghanistan, actually fighting in Afghanistan way back in 2012, in April of 2012, as a matter of fact. One of my former students. This is a guy I trained to go out and prevail in conflict without ever engaging the enemy. And what do we do with him? We send him right into the face of the enemy, and he leaves a wife and two children at home. He was an Army Green Beret. Here's Ford Shaw, Marine Corps Special Operations, captain, newly assigned to Marine Corps Special Ops Command, another one of my students that we taught to engage the enemy and prevail without really getting into a fight. We're going to talk about how that's done later. Tom Saunders. He was the Critical Skills Operator of the Year for the entire Marine Corps Special Ops Command the year before he was killed. These gentlemen were killed in a helicopter accident just getting ready for their mission two years ago down in Florida. 
Andrew Seif, also on that same helicopter. We attended his Silver Star Award ceremony, which is extremely rare in the Marine Corps. You almost never hear about a Marine receiving a Silver Star. And we were there at his award ceremony along with his commander, his colleagues, his brothers-in-arms, his wife, soon-to-be widow. That was on a Friday. The following Tuesday, he was killed getting ready for a mission. Dietrich Schmiemann, another student of mine, getting ready for a mission. He was killed in an aircraft crash in Mississippi just a few months ago, I think back in May. Chad Jensen, same airplane crash. Joseph Murray. All special ops people, all people I personally know and who aren't with us anymore. So I've got a very, very intimate and emotional connection to this community. And it's why I'm here at Notre Dame to talk to you about how we have missed the mark on diagnosing the problem. And because we have not diagnosed it correctly, we're losing really, really good Americans when we shouldn't be losing these Americans. These are some of the most talented, gifted, courageous, morally sound people in the world. And we load them up on aircraft to put them in the face of enemies that they don't need to engage head on. I took this photograph in Zaire, now known as the Republic, the Democratic Republic of the Congo. When they put the word democratic in the name of the country, you have to wonder if they're really democratic. But it used to be Zaire when I was there. 30 years I've been carrying this photograph around with me to remind me of this young man. I took his photograph because he was in a field eating worms with about 50 other Zairean kids. They're all in a field. It looked like they were picking strawberries. And we drove over next to him and we got out of the car and we said, hey, hey kids. What you doing out here? Picking strawberries? No, we eat the worms. <laughs> Do you mind if I take your picture? I would love to know where he is today, but that photograph has been in my pocket for 30 years to remind me what a great country we live in and why we fight. What do we have here that we take for granted more than any other place in the world in great, great abundance that we fight for? Because this is a zero-sum game also. How many people are on the planet? Seven and a half billion? How many of us have the privilege of calling ourselves Americans? 325 million, small percentage. And we live on an island in North America. And we take all these things for granted. You see where I'm going with this, all right? Who wants to spin the wheel and, and get a consonant in the Wheel of Fortune? <laughs> who wants to solve the puzzle? What does that letter, what does that last letter stand for? Oh yeah. We got all, all tons and tons and tons of this stuff. But that kid in Zaire didn't have any of this. Not one of those things. And we have it and we don't even know. That's why we lose people fighting. This is Jonas Savimbi. Hands down, the most charismatic human being I've ever met in my life. Anybody studied Angola, Civil War? Jonas, Dr. Savimbi. We called him President Savimbi. He created something called the Total Union for Total Independence of Angola. UNITA was the acronym. And interestingly, right here in Notre Dame at the Kroc Institute for International Peace Studies, there are records about what happened to his, his guerrilla force, which reached 65,000 at a certain point. I always wonder, what happened to all those guys that worked for President Savimbi that I, that I loved as brothers? Where are they now, 31 years down the road? Well, you can go over here to the Kroc Institute for International Peace Studies, and there's a record, and it's on the Internet. You can see where all the various members of his guerrilla force were disbanded to after they reached a peace settlement. When did they reach a peace settlement in Angola after 38 years, 37 years of civil war? That man stood up a guerrilla force in the 1960s, and he fought with them from the front, leading from the front, seen him do it, until he was ambushed and killed in Luanda on his way to some meeting in 2002. He had an idea. He had an idea for the total independence of Angola. And when his idea died, when he died, his idea went away. And that's the strength of a population-centric struggle. It's about an idea. It's not about tanks on the battlefield, ships on the seas, formations on, a, on the war fields. It's about an idea. And when you lose that idea and your adversary keeps their idea longer, guess what? They win. But his idea died when he died in 2002. I want to show you another video. I could watch this stuff all day long. And I'd love to go to the Kroc Institute for International Peace Studies and find out where every single one of these brothers is and go visit them in their village in Angola. 
These were members of various tribes. If you've spent time in Africa, now you, you know tribal differences in Africa are deep. That's <laughs> another one of those societies where the tribes, the tribes love to attack each other because it's a zero-sum game. It's about resources. So these guys that you're going to see performing here, they're going to be singing and dancing, a song that they all learn together in one language, one dance step, even though they're from disparate tribes who, without Jonas Savimbi, would probably be warring with one another. But because of his charismatic personality, he was able to bring them together. Savimbi was impressive. He spoke seven languages. I sat in a speech that he gave for three hours. Didn't understand one word of it. He's speaking Chokwe, Mbundu, French, Portuguese, maybe a tiny bit of English. And I was on the edge of my seat the entire time he was talking. Couldn't take my eyes off the guy. And every one of his people felt the same way about him. So let's, let's check out these disparate tribal members all working for Jonas Savimbi because he had an idea of independence. <laughs> guys. If you didn't step in and say, time out, guys, we got work to do, they'd still be dancing right now. They, they dance ruts in the ground. And I'm not kidding. It looked like elephants came through the village. The ruts in the ground from the dancing. So I get the same feeling when I walk around Notre Dame on the day before a football game. <laughs> I do. I, I really do. It gives me chills. Because it's an idea. It's a belief. It's a community. It's a culture. It's a recognition of something bigger than the individual. Even with these deep-seated rivalries in their identity, according to their tribal affiliations, they believed in this idea. And that song, I don't know what they're talking about. Some of you maybe understand. But they're probably talking about kicking the Russians and the Cubans out of Angola. That was the goal. And I'm going, how come the Army Green Berets aren't doing this? Why aren't the US Army Special Forces doing this? This is what they were created to do. They're force multipliers. They go to denied areas behind enemy lines. They link up with guerrilla forces and partisans and surrogates. They teach them to go out and engage their own enemies in their own way. And then we sort of are in the back of the formation, making sure the right guys turn left and right and straight ahead. But we don't bring people home in body bags in the numbers we've been doing when we engage people like this. Let them fight their own wars. That was the attitude. But the Pentagon said, oh, we would have to send 300 people there because <laughs> we have to have air cover. We have to have ships on the seas for search and rescue. We have to have cooks, truck drivers, uh, administrative people, medics. We've got all this tooth-to-tail ratio in our military. So we don't, we don't send really small elements to do things like this. So the government has to go elsewhere for that kind of service. It's, it's just ironic. So what I didn't mention to you about the most charismatic person I had ever met, Jonas Savimbi, we called him a guerrilla fighter, a president, a warrior, 
a freedom fighter. What did his adversaries in Luanda at the MPLA call him? He was a terrorist. They said he's a terrorist and he's got to be killed. But he's in the White House shaking hands with the President of the United States. How could he be a terrorist? And this is my point. We label people we don't like as terrorists because all the people in the country can rally behind this, this word terrorism. And I think, I think we do a disservice. How many of you know Walter Cronkite, the most trusted man in America, back when he was broadcasting on CBS? Back in my day when I was a small kid watching Era Parsegan dominate in the fit football world, I'm talking eight, nine, ten years old, that's what I was. I'm also sitting at a dining room table every night with my mother eating a prepared meal with no cell phones, and the TV was on because my mother had a waiver. During the Vietnam War, which is all of my childhood, the waiver said we can watch TV from 6 to 6.30 because Walter Cronkite, the most trusted man in the world, is going to tell us the way it is. And that's the way he signed off every night. That's the way it is. What do you think he led every 30-minute segment with every single night? How many U.S. troops were killed in Vietnam for years and years and years? Not as long as Afghanistan, but for years, my entire childhood. In fact, I couldn't wait to graduate from high school, so I'd go join the Army, follow in my uncle's footsteps, and go to Vietnam and kill soldiers from North Vietnamese Army and the Viet Cong. I wanted to be just like my Uncle Jim because he served in Vietnam in the 173rd Airborne Brigade. Anyway, Walter Cronkite. And I would turn to my mother at our dinner and say, Mom, now mind you, my mother was a secretary. She was a high school graduate. She made $100 a week. I know that because she'd bring five $20 bills home and lay them out on her bed every Friday and say, this $20 is so we can buy a new battery for the car. This $20 is going to buy your food. This $20 is going to buy oil to heat the house, et cetera, et cetera. She was not educated. But when I said, Mom, why are we in Vietnam? Why are we having a war in Vietnam? And here's what she said. Because communism is spreading throughout Indochina and Southeast Asia, and we have to go there and stop something called the domino effect. This is my mother, a high school graduate, who knew that much. Why? Because she had a brother who was there. And we watched Walker, Walter Cronkite every night because he didn't have any choices. There were only two other stations, NBC and ABC. He was trusted. Anybody recognize these two gentlemen? The one on the right we know, right? Another Irish guy. So a lot of people aren't aware. This is the first thing they made me aware of when I showed up at Fort Bragg as an 18-year-old Green Beret. They said, you know, President Kennedy was just here. This is 1975. Oh, really? You would think he was just here yesterday because they were that proud. The president was at Fort Bragg. Really? Yeah, we had to pick up all the pine cones because <laughs> the president was coming. And they heard that the president said, I, can't, I really can't wait to get down to Fort Bragg and see all the wonderful pine trees and the pine cones. So they made the soldiers go put the pine cones back on the ground. <laughs> Don't tell me you haven't seen some of that in Notre Dame. The gentleman on the left was the senior Green Beret, U.S. Army Special Forces Commander, William P. Yarborough, Brigadier General. Look at that. It's extraordinary. This little one-star general, and in our Pentagon, a one-star general is like a private. They're at the bottom of the executive ranks. They're starting all over again in the executive service. So he's having a one-on-one -on -one conversation, not surrounded by staff that you can see in this photograph. Why is the President of the United States talking to the top Green Beret in October of 1961? Why are they having this intimate conversation in a one-on-one -on -one setting? Anybody know? Indochina. Communism was spreading. There was something called the domino effect, like my mother articulated. And we had to go to Vietnam and stop it. What Kennedy saw us doing was getting deeper and deeper. He saw mission creep. He saw the Pentagon and the military wanting to send more troops to do things other than just be advisors. And the Green Berets were the advisors. Who were they advising? The South Vietnamese Army to defend their own country. More is always better in the U.S. military, I'm sorry to say. So the president got infatuated. He had fought. He had fought and been injured gravely in World War II. There's a book about it, PT-109. He was injured in World War II. He wanted to find a way not to send hundreds of thousands of soldiers and end up what do we lose, 58,000 troops in Vietnam and tens of thousands wounded? He wanted to find a way to prevail in Vietnam without sending conventional forces. So he was intrigued and fascinated 
by the Green Berets. That's why he was at Fort Bragg. It was a big deal in October of 61. Here's why it became an even bigger deal for the U.S. Army. Here's a letter that came to the Army, and it's addressed to the United States Army, April 1962. It says, another military dimension, guerrilla warfare, has necessarily been added to the American profession of arms. The literal translation, translation of guerrilla warfare, a little war, is hardly applicable to this ancient, but at the same time, modern threat. I note that the Army has several terms which describe the various facets of the current struggle, wars of subversion, covert aggression, and in broad professional terms, special warfare or unconventional warfare. Yeah, the Army does have those terms, and they have doctrinal definitions for every one of them. It gets confusing. And I'm not going to read the rest of the letter, but I can leave it here for the record if you like, or you can find it on the internet, but there's a, there's a copy signed by the President of the United States. This is an extraordinary piece of paper. Again, a President telling the Army, hey, I know that this war going on in Vietnam is about guerrilla warfare, it's about unconventional warfare, and you guys have something in the Army called Green Berets, because I just went down to Fort Bragg and saw them, and I think they're the right answer. And what happened, what happened a year after this, this letter was written? We lost President Kennedy. I often like to wonder what the world would be like today if President Kennedy had finished his first term and controlled the deployment of U.S. military members to Vietnam, because he would have been promoting the Green Berets instead of armored divisions and infantry divisions. Why do I know this? Because, again, I got to Fort Bragg in 1975. I was essentially raised by veterans of Vietnam who were Green Berets. And uh, I was in 5th Special Forces Group. And to this day, 5th Special Forces Group is supposed to focus on the Middle East. Namely, back in those days when I was in that unit, we had Iraq and Iran as our area of operations. We had to be culturally sensitive, linguistic, linguistically skilled in Persian and Arabic in order to cover that part of the world. And my first trip out of the country was to Iran. And uh, that was before I, had, I needed to shave. I didn't have this ridiculous mustache back then. But I'm in that photograph with my buddies. You can spot the Americans because we're wearing the Vietnam-era camouflage fatigues in the desert where it's 129 degrees in the shade. And you can easily spot the Iranians because that's cool weather for them. But they've got the desert cami. Again, love to know where those guys were. Shortly after we left, we were working with the Iranian special forces. Uh, there was a revolution in Iran, and we all know what happened. Perfect. Four. Whoa, that'll be fun. So that was an eye-opener for me. I'm, you know, I'm trained by Vietnam veterans. I got an uncle who served in Vietnam. I'm wearing camouflage patterns from Vietnam. And I'm spending all my time in the desert. Why? Because that's where the oil is. That's where the U.S. interests are. We're addicted hopelessly to petroleum, so our interests are in the Middle East where there's lots of oil. Early on in my Army career, we started seeing things uh, that we started to call terrorism. And it was Middle Eastern terrorism that we paid the most attention to. So what happens? The President picks up the phone. By now I'm talking about Carter. President Carter picks up the phone, calls the Army, and says, hey, there are a lot of hijackings going on around the world. There are a lot of hostage-taking scenarios where these terrorists are taking hostages. What capability do we have in our military forces to get back a hijacked aircraft or to rescue hostages from terrorists? What do you think the Army said? Well, we got, we got all that. Yeah, we, we, uh, last time a president talked to us, Kennedy, we didn't really have a book about it, but we stapled together a whole bunch of articles written by smart people about special warfare. And in there somewhere, I'm sure there's some guys that know how to rescue hostages. Not so much. That's, a, that's an extremely specialized endeavor. To go into a room like this full of people and within about a half a second figure out who's the good guy and who's the bad guy and eliminate the threat and take the good ones out, that's a specialty. And Green Berets don't specialize in that. Rangers don't specialize in that. But the Army said, yeah, we got that capability. Meanwhile, they whispered, they said, hey, Colonel Beckwith, can you go create this kind of capability. So Charlie Beckwith in the late 70s went down to Fort Bragg and he started piecing together this capability. And uh, that's where I ended up. Uh, this was half of the assault force that was going to rescue the hostages in Iran. 
longest standing hostage um, crisis in American history, I think 444 days. As soon as Ronald Reagan was inaugurated, the Iranian uh, radicals who were holding our hostages, they were all from the U.S. Embassy, about 50-some, 50, 52, uh, were released the day Ronald Reagan became president. But the uh, April prior to that, President Carter authorized a rescue mission, and it went bad. And about that number of people were on that airplane right there when it caught fire. Why did it catch fire? Because one of our helicopters that was landing next to it to refuel uh, caught a wind gust, bumped into the airplane, fire ensued. There were eight Americans trapped on that aircraft. They were all Air Force members trapped uh, in the cockpit, burned to death. The rest of the shooter force, the assault force, got out with nothing but the clothes on their back. Weapons, ammunition, money, everything was left in the airplane because it was burning that fast. They were sitting on a blivet full of about 500 gallons of jet fuel because they were riding on the same airplane that was carrying the fuel to refuel the helicopters. So we had to come up with definitions of terrorism. What do you think the United States government did? We went to the law books and we said, oh, if we look in uh, Title 28 of the United States Code, we'll write a law about terrorism that focuses on the fact that it's an unlawful thing. So we've got over 100 definitions of terrorism. And this is part of my point. If you look at State Department's definition, that's, uh, that's mostly political rather than unlawful. Here's the Defense Department. It's, it's political and unlawful and it offends people. Uh, so, um, you know, we've got a lot of definitions of, of terrorism on the books. It adds to the confusion. But one thing we, we guaranteed ourselves back in the 80s when Ronald Reagan was president, we are not going to negotiate with terrorists. Well, if you don't have a solid definition of what a terrorist is, how do you know with whom not to negotiate? Or on the other side of the coin, who we can negotiate with? Well, it's wishy-washy. Saddam Hussein offended us in 1990 by sending his army into Kuwait. He wanted to annex the little oil state of Kuwait because it's a zero-sum game. He wanted to take what the Kuwaitis had. The United Nations got together and drafted a resolution and said, we want the Iraqi army out of Kuwait. So who got the lion's share of that mission? The United States military, of course. We go over there and we handily get the Iraqis out of Kuwait, send them back to Baghdad, some of them. The rest were killed. So who was the president when this happened? I call this the first Gulf War, early 1991. Lasted about 100 hours, right? Who was the president? George H.W. Bush. Bush 41, as I call him. If you go online and try to find YouTube videos of Bush 41 talking about terrorism, terrorism, terror, terror, terrorists, we're killing terrorists, I couldn't find a single video of the elder Bush talking about terrorism. He did talk about the values for which the United States of America stands. He did talk about that idea a lot in public. Saddam was not happy. Saddam Hussein, the leader of the fourth largest army in the world, was not happy that his army got decimated in Kuwait. So he decided he was going to retaliate against the man he held culpable, and that was George Bush 41, George H.W. Bush, the elder Bush. When George Bush 41 went to Kuwait City to receive his accolades from the government of Kuwait, Saddam Hussein sent some people there to try and kill him. Who was president at that point? Bill Clinton. In retaliation for that, Bill Clinton fired 23 cruise missiles into the Iraqi Intelligence Service headquarters in Baghdad at 2 in the morning because his goal was not to hurt anyone but to send a message to the Iraqi Intelligence Service that we're not happy that you tried to kill our former president. Okay. We considered that to be terrorism. Now, speaking of we do not negotiate with terrorists, we all know Yasser Arafat, the head of the, for years and years, the head of the Palestine Liberation Organization. The Oslo Accords, a secret set of peace talks sponsored by the U.S., where we created a treaty between the PLO and Israel, and they signed that treaty at the White House under the supervision of President Clinton. He was clearly the happiest person in that photograph. The head of state of Israel, I thought, if you watch the video, it looks like he's going to vomit. It was not a happy day for him. Yasser Arafat is smiling broadly. He knows that the document he signed means nothing to him or his people. They just signed it to make everybody else happy. They're going to keep doing what they're doing. But what happened to we do not negotiate with terrorists? Well, they formed something called the Palestinian Authority, which was sort of a semi-recognized government 
of which now Yasser Arafat becomes president. He's President Arafat of the Palestinian Authority, <coughs> so he's no longer a terrorist. We negotiated our way out of that one. Uh, Jerry Adams, the head of the Sinn Féin, a political arm of the Irish Republican Army. For years and years, we thought the IRA were terrorists. Who knew that one of their leaders was going to be talking to the President of the United States in the White House? So I'm just telling you, this definition of terrorism is squishy, and it's applied on a very selective basis depending on what our goals are and who we need to be friends with. Nelson Mandela spent 23 years in a South African prison for terrorism. Then he became the president of South Africa, entertained by multiple presidents of the United States. Fast forward, 1990s, Al-Qaeda decides the United States has too many people in the Middle East. We want them out. We're going to try and provoke them. So Al-Qaeda attacked us in various places, most notably at our embassies in Nairobi and Dar es Salaam. They attacked a U.S. Navy vessel in Yemen. Did we go there to Afghanistan and try to get them? No. No, Bill Clinton wasn't going to do that. He wasn't going to commit forces head-on in the graveyard of empires. He wasn't tricked. Now Osama bin Laden is ever more frustrated. What do I got to do to these Americans to get them to come after me in Afghanistan? Because that's where I want them. Well, we'll do 9-11. We'll do That'll really provoke them. Now we're up to current history, so you're with me. So Bruce Rydell was a noteworthy analyst who I trust at CIA. And listen to what he said about the reason Al-Qaeda attacked the United States in America, in New York, Pennsylvania, and Washington. Oops. Pull up Bruce right here. Bruce is retired now, but a really, really well-regarded CIA analyst. The objective was to goad the United States into invading Afghanistan. Then they could destroy an American army in Afghanistan, shatter our will at home, and lead the United States and their allies to get out of the Islamic world. I did, I did first half of 1982 on an exchange program with the British Special Air Service. That's kind of the kind of the British answer to U.S. Army Special Forces and Delta Force, all, all in one, the SAS. And I learned from them because of their experience in Northern Ireland. They were fighting the IRA in Northern Ireland while I was there working with them. And they explained it to me. They said, look, Stu, when you send conventional forces to a situation like this, the very people you went there to help will end up hating you because our militaries are so huge. We have such an imposing footprint. Even if we're there to do good things, people were trying to help are not going to like us after we've been there for a while. Like company that you love in your back bedroom when they stay too long, you don't like them anymore. But that's what's going on here. And that's why we, we, uh, we don't do a good job of analyzing what's happening. And I don't hear anybody in Washington explaining it to the American people in terms that American people are going to appreciate. Look, we can't respond to every one of these attacks because that's what the bad guys want us to do. They want us to send our young men and women in uniform, in large formations, to the graveyard of empires, and they're going to meet us there, and they're going to destroy us. That's what they're doing. Ayman al-Zawahiri, while he was being radicalized, he used to be a doctor, a medical doctor in Egypt. He's Egyptian. He got radicalized in prison because he got locked up for revolutionary activities. Uh, when he became prominent in al-Qaeda, he said, you know, we need to take our war, our struggle, our anti-West struggle. He didn't talk about terrorism. He talked about guerrilla warfare. We need to take this fight to Afghanistan because that's where we can prevail against the big armies. And he did. He did. They went to Afghanistan. They did exactly what they wanted to do, and we fell for it. We performed exactly the way they, they wanted us to. Some of you remember this day. Emotional time for that young president. He had to do something. 
He's got a whole country that's staring at him saying, what are you going to do now? So it's all about doing something to prove to the American people that our government is there to protect them and to fight for them and defend all those things that we have in this country. And that's what he did. And it started really well. You know, on the Friday after 9-11, I did what I always did on Friday nights after working you know, most of the previous day and night at CIA headquarters. I was trapped at CIA when 9-11 happened. I'm talking about figuratively. They promoted me into some staff jobs that I hated. And uh, it was 20 hours a day. And on Fridays, I would break free and go down to a, uh, a little pub where a lot of my mentors who formerly worked at the agency would hang out on Friday evenings. We'd get a beer. And on the first Friday after 9-11, I walk in, and there are my mentors, all retired guys, saying, we've been waiting for you because you're the only one left who actually has access to the building. What's the president going to do about this 9-11? I said, that's a no-brainer, guys. I'll tell you exactly what he's going to do. He said, did you go to the White House? No, I didn't go to the White House. I, didn't, I don't need to go to the White House to know that this president is not crazy, and he's not dumb, and he's surrounded by really smart people. Well, what's he going to do? He's going to send U.S. Army Green Berets to Afghanistan in small numbers. They're going to work with Afghan warlords. They're going to pay them bags of cash, and they're going to point them in the direction of al-Qaeda and Taliban, and they're going to say, go kill them. And when you get back, we'll pay you. That worked real well for a little while. <laughs> then we got the happy with the concept of sending in forces. Next thing you know, we got conventional forces camped out in Afghanistan for a decade and a half. Why is it important to you all? A lot of you may not end up in the government. You may not end up in the military. You're going to go into business. You're going to become extremely wealthy. And you're going to be advisors to smart people in Washington. And I want you to remember this day when people ask you for your advice and your opinion. Remember what we talked about in this room. And you give advice directly to the powerful people in Washington who make the decisions. And make sure they don't say things like, they're going to hear from all of us soon because I'm going to send a half million soldiers to the graveyard of empires. Here's one of those surgical mission guys. This guy is trained to go into a room like this one full of people, sort out the bad guys from the good guys, eliminate the threat from the bad guys, and take the good ones out to medical treatment. He's a surgical shooter. He retired from his unit. He went into business teaching surgical shooting, but he's quite, he's quite entertaining to listen to. His name is John McPhee. He's a former operator, but again, from a surgical unit, not from the Green Berets. But listen to what he says about his experience in both Afghanistan and Iraq. Iraq kicked off early 03. We were some of the first guys on the ground. And uh, man, you know, compared to Afghanistan, like, you know, I'm eating rice and flies for meals, you know, uh, crapping in a hole in the ground, lucky to get a shower. You know, just hoping the water I drank didn't make me sick in Afghanistan to, uh, I lived in Saddam's palace. I washed my face in a gold sink. I had a six shower head shower. Like, I didn't even have this stuff in my house. So, you know, my first day in, in Iraq, I was like, this is how you war right here. Let me get more hot water in the gold sink. So Iraq was just textbook war. You know, Afghanistan, you know, on a scale of 1 to 10, if the enemy was 2, the mountains were a 10. We're fighting at a 12 in Afghanistan. Iraq, the enemy, you know, might have been a 4, but the terrain was also a 4. So everything was just easier. God bless him. Let me get this right. <coughs> One of the best trained surgical shooters in the world. Talking about this is how you war right here. Why was he so happy in that environment? he got to practice what he was taught to do every single night, multiple times. They're stringing together multiple raids in Iraq. This is how you war right here. <laughs> if that's your, your avocation. But I don't think it's a good strategy. And you shouldn't think so either. But popular culture draws us to people like him. He also is extremely charismatic. He's extremely good at what he does. So are the Navy SEALs. In fact, they make movies and write books about Navy SEALs. We all know they're the best, right? Because popular culture tells us. We get it on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Snapchat. All this popular culture tells us the Navy SEALs are the best guys. And they're really the best at what they do. But they're designed for maritime environments. This guy was designed for surgical shooting. 
Green Berets are designed to go and teach Angolans how to wage civil war. Look at all the different categories of warfare that stack up underneath the Pentagon's list of irregular warfare operations and activities. A bunch of stuff. And we're engaged in all of this right now. Look, the there's a definition of irregular warfare. There's a definition of unconventional warfare, by, through, and with. So let's finish this up by figuring out a way to simplify. And I have to give credit to a U.S. Air Force major named Joe Brown. He wrote an article recently where he said, you know what, we got to simplify all this complicated mishmash of doctrinal definitions having to do with special warfare, irregular warfare, unconventional warfare, whatever you want to call it. And he wrote an article that, for me, really clarified it. And he said, when we talk about war, again, we talk about how. All the phraseology, all the doctrinal terms and definitions only focus on how, because that's the way the Pentagon thinks. What do we have to do and how are we going to do it? What they don't spend enough time thinking about and talking about is why. The Major, Major Joe Brown from the Air Force wrote this very grown-up paper that asks us all to think about why. So when we talk about why in war, there's really only two different modes. Hegemony and expansion, and that's your quote-unquote traditional war. And then your irregular war is all about governance. It's all about people, population-centric. And in, an, in wars of governance, where it's about the people, there's only three players. It couldn't be any more simple. The existing government or the existing power structure, we call it the incumbent. The insurgent, you know, whoever the opposition is that's coming in to try and <coughs> change that government. And then the people get to decide, don't they? The population decides whether they want to join the Taliban or the U.S. So kudos to Air Force Major Joe Brown for trying to simplify. I wish more people in Washington would read his articles. I wish they would read Dr. Desch's article about how we treat our veterans. Who's fighting these wars? The ones who have to versus the ones that don't have to. What a small population of our country that comprises. There you have it. I think you, uh, I think you get where I'm coming from, yes? I hope. Absolutely. Thank you very much. If you'd like to follow the Notre Dame International Security Center seminar series, please visit our website at politicalscience.nd.edu forward slash ndisc forward slash or follow us on Twitter at hashtag nd underscore isc. Please note that opinions expressed in the seminar series are solely those of the participants or speakers, not of the International Security Center or the University of Notre Dame, which take no institutional position. Music for this podcast is licensed under Sample Swap.